Father, may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be found acceptable in your sight. <clears throat> For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I had the opportunity this last week to communicate with uh, a pastor friend of mine who's preaching on the book of Revelation as well this summer. And he noticed that I, too, was doing it. Uh, but he said, I see you're only talking about the seven churches. He said, how can you make that last? He said, because I intend to cover all seven in one sermon. To which I told him, good luck. Well, I got an email from the other day. He said, I did my first sermon and I couldn't get any further than Ephesus, and so I announced to my congregation, we're going to do one church a week for six more weeks. <laughs> I really enjoyed this series in a manner of speaking, in spite of the fact that someone once told me regarding this series, if it was your intent to make us squirm a little bit, you've done a good job. In fact, somebody said maybe you should have called this series Squirm-A-Lot. Well, believe me, I have squirmed as much as you have. And this message today is one that will cause probably many of us to squirm a little bit, including myself. And like I've done every week, it's kind of hard. I, I pick out a tie, that, and it's kind of hard to do. But, you know, this is my Laodicea tie. You know, the church that was neither hot nor cold, but was lukewarm. And so I thought, well, what's the cure for being lukewarm? It is to have a heart on fire for Jesus. So this is my Laodicea tie today. Let me begin by asking you this question. Are you a moderate? Are you a moderate? You know, not many people, I don't think, would answer yes to that question. In fact, when it comes to politics, the moderate is almost an extinct species. I mean, today you are either uh, conservative or liberal or maybe libertarian, but you are probably not a moderate. I don't know of very many politicians, for example, who would start off by saying, vote for me, I'm a moderate. But the other question is, are you a moderate Christian? The moderate Christian, I would suggest, has a moderate Jesus who makes moderate demands. The moderate Christian, or what I might even call the wishy-washy Christian, keeps Jesus at arm's length, lest this religion thing gets too much of a grip on their lives. They don't want to be some Jesus freak. They don't want to be somebody who is one of these Christian people. They would just rather be moderate, wishy-washy. Well, that's exactly what happened to this church in Laodicea. And you're going to see here on the map again uh, where Laodicea is, and above these seven churches, this church receives a more scathing com condemnation than any of the rest of them. Now you can see we started in Ephesus, number one, went up to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Last week we dealt with Sardis. I'm skipping ahead because we're flip-flopping service. You remember that wonderful explanation before. And next week we're going to come back to 
Philadelphia, Philos Delphos, Philia Delphos, the city of brotherly love. But for today, we're going to spend time in Laodicea. Laodicea is about 90 miles east of the first city we looked at called Ephesus. It's about 45 miles south of Philadelphia. It was a very prosperous town that was known for its hot mineral springs. Kind of like Hot Springs, Arkansas, huh? Well, and they found a, a system of aqueducts they could use to take that piping hot water that bubbled out from beneath the earth and kind of ship it into the city. But guess what? By the time it got into the city, it was now neither hot nor cold. It was lukewarm. Now, outwardly, the church here in Laodicea appeared to be very strong, very prosperous. Clearly, the people that worshipped at this church considered themselves happy and blessed, and they lived in a town that everybody else wished they could live in as well. And it seems that this church drew all of its members from the wealthiest families that lived in Laodicea. Now, unlike Smyrna, there was obviously no... Um, persecution. Unlike Pergamum, there seems not really to be any false doctrine. Uh, we find nothing uh, like the gross immorality of Jezebel uh, and her corrupt legions back in Thyatira. Uh, Laodicea was a comfortable place to live in and also a very comfortable place to go to church. And guess what? That combination made Jesus sick to his stomach. And Jesus had a word for them. And here's what we learn about his word. You see it on the next screen. There's a number of things we learn about the word of God. And one of them is that his word is true. What Matt read to you before in verse 14 says, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness. Now, i got to tell you, amen is more than just the last word in a prayer. It means something more than finally the pastor is done praying. It also does not mean, now let's eat. That's not what amen means. Amen is a sign of agreement. Now, I'm kind of looking forward to getting back to Angola prison in September. I'm kind of anxious to get back on the mission field because, you know, sometimes when I preach down in Angola... I get a little bit more excited than I do here uh, sometimes. But it's not uncommon for somebody to raise their hand and, and say, Preach it! Preach it! You know, come on, come on! And amen! Amen! And I hear that quite a bit. And amen is just their way of saying, I'm with you, preacher. I'm with you. What you just said is true. Now, here, if we ever did that, you know, people around us have cardiac arrest, probably. You know, here, gee, thank you. <laughs> Oh, Tommy just fell out of his pew, John. <laughs> yeah, here Jesus calls himself the Amen. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am the last word. I'm the last word in human history. I'm the last word in your personal life. Uh, I'm the last word you know, in everything. It's not cancer. It's not divorce. It's not bankruptcy. It's not death. It's not health. Jesus and Jesus alone is the last word in my life and in your life. He's the final amen 
uh, to all that God has said because it says he is the faithful and true witness. So we can trust him completely. What he says is true because all he says is true, and it's true all the time. Now, for the church at Laodicea, it means that when Christ issues his scathing denunciation of this place, they cannot escape it by saying, well, that's just his opinion. No, that's not just his opinion. That's the word of the Son of God that is faithful and true in all that he said. I cannot claim to speak infallible truth, but when Jesus speaks, when the word of God speaks, friends, the church must listen. That's why it makes me sick to my stomach, too, when people pick and choose what they choose to believe out of the Word of God. They kind of cherry-pick Scripture. You know, if we want to, you know, get on our kids for not working hard, we say, anybody that does not work, neither shall he eat, which is horribly out of context. Or when we choose to whip our kids, we say, well, it says, spoil the rod, and spoil the child. We kind of pull that out and don't really know what a rod is. We figure it's got to be something big. Or we say money is the root of all evil and we take that out of context. Or we just choose to ignore things like living together before marriage. Uh, about people's right to life. Whether it's before birth or whether it's at the end of their life. We say, well, obviously Jesus wasn't living in 2012, when Jesus speaks, the church must listen. His word is also authoritative. And in verse 14b, it says, these are the words of the ruler of God's creation. This means that all of creation, you remember this song, it was a very popular song, I think when I was in seventh and eighth grade, Lori London sang it, he's got the whole world. In his hands, he's got the whole... Well, you can join with me. No, never mind. Uh, he was there at the beginning, and actually he was there before the beginning. He's going to be there after it's all over and done with. The whole universe owes its existence to the mighty power of God. He is sovereign over every bird that flies, every fish that swims, every flower that blooms, every rabbit that hops. And not only is he sovereign... He is the glue that holds everything together. I mean, if God took his hand off the wheel for a moment, this universe would spin out of control. Anybody here enjoy breathing? You breathe because Jesus gave you life and breath. We owe him everything. When he speaks, remember that old commercial when... Was it E.F. Hutton speaks? Everybody listens. No, when God speaks, his word is true and absolutely authoritative. And because of that, this leads us to our next major point, his indictment. His indictment. He says to these people, next screen here please, he said, you are indifferent. In other words, I'm speaking, but you guys could care less. He said, I know your deeds. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Literally in the Greek, it's, it's, I'm ready to vomit. Now, I'm kind of puzzled over these words. 
you know, when I, when I go through studying this, I'm wondering why Jesus said, I wish you were hot or cold. Then a thought came to me that kind of made it plain, other than the fact that they had it right in front of them, piping the hot springs, and when it got there, it wasn't hot or cold anymore. It was lukewarm. But I think it's a little bit more than that. What's another word for lukewarm water? Room temperature. I heard somebody say room temperature. What do you need to do to water to make it room temperature? Nothing. You just leave it sit there and it becomes room temperature. Now suppose you want hot water. You've got to do something. You've got to put it in the stove or you shove it in the microwave or you run it through a hot water heater. But hot water never becomes hot on its own. Now suppose you want cold water. You gotta do something to make it cold. You put it in the refrigerator, you add ice cubes to it, and under normal circumstances, water will never get cold left to itself. So here comes the indictment. The Laodiceans were not guilty of some sort of intentional sin, like committing immorality or sleeping around or promoting false doctrine or welcoming false prophets into their church. In order to be guilty of those things, you had to do something. You had to make some sort of decision to move in that direction. But instead, they become lukewarm. And how did they become lukewarm? Just do nothing. And if you just do nothing, you will become lukewarm, and that makes Jesus sick to his stomach. A lukewarm Christian is nothing more than a room temperature Christian who becomes just like his or her environment. Reminds me of a story I heard at the seminary about a guy between the summer months went up to work as a logger up in Alaska. Lumberjacks. And when he came back to the seminary, they said, what was that like? That's a lot of really tough guys up there working at at, at Lumberjacks. What did they think about you being a Christian? And he said, they never caught on. Well, in other words, he didn't do anything to suggest to them that he was any different than they were. Rather than changing the world around them, they became like the world. And to make matters worse, they were as happy as a clam at high tide. They followed the old saying, go along to get along. And that's the very definition of a moderate Christian or a wishy-washy Christian. We're just going to go along to get along. Now, why does Jesus hate that so much? Why does that make Jesus so sick to his stomach? Well, it's mostly because a person in this condition doesn't even know it. They're indifferent. They slip into a, a state of such total indifference that they don't really care anymore about their spiritual condition. I mean, nothing matters to them anymore. After all, by definition, room temperature is what? It's comfortable. Comfortable. It feels right. You're the same as everybody else around you. That's why... A lot of kids in high school and junior high have a hard time speaking up for their faith because they don't want to be, what, uncomfortable. 
That's why a lot of us never raise the issue of being a Christian around other people because we don't want to be uncomfortable. We don't want to be too hot. We don't want to be too cold. We'll just kind of drift and we'll be okay. Now, such a man, such a person who thinks that way is unreachable unless you shock him. And the way Jesus shocked them was saying, you guys want to be comfortable? <coughs> I spit you out of my mouth. That'd get your attention pretty quick, wouldn't it? I mean, nothing like this was ever said to that compromising church at Pergamum. Nothing like that was said to that, that morally corrupt church at Thyatira. And in some ways, those churches, Thyatira and Pergamum, were more reachable than a whole bunch of wishy-washy, lukewarm Laodiceans. At least those other churches could see the error of their way. I'd say not so with lukewarmness. And I thought about this. It occurred to me that this sin of being lukewarm is especially likely among longtime church members. Got any longtime church members here today? Only two of them. Wow. <laughs> I mean, just think about it. I mean, if you've gone to church most of your life, you're a longtime church member, you pretty much know the ropes. I mean, you know how the system works. Uh, you know the lingo. In other words, you understand the talk. When somebody says, meet you in the narthex, you know where to go. If somebody says we're going to sit in the nave, you know where to sit. If somebody said we're going to chant the intro, you pretty much know what that was. But there's a lot of people who haven't had the vaguest idea what you're talking about. You know all the hand signals. You know that when the pastor turns around faces the altar and does this, it means what? Stand up. But I'll tell you, somebody who's never been in church before, they, this looks like, I don't know what I'm doing. And you know this means sit down. And you know what it means when somebody says, let's rise. I always say, you can't rise. Stand up, for heaven's sakes. If you could rise, go all the way to heaven. You know the ropes. Uh, you know where to sit. You know how to behave because you are church broken. You know how to get along in a worship service. You know what you can say and what you can't say. You know where to find stuff. You kind of know how the machinery of the church works. And, and, and what can happen is sometimes what seems so very exciting to you when you first started out is now kind of like an old pair of shoes. It's just comfortable. Now, i got to admit something to you. I'm as prone to lukewarmness as anybody. I have been a Christian so long that it is extremely easy for me to take it all for granted. I mean, I could practically do a church service with my eyes closed. Cruise control. Back in the old days of the TLH, I didn't need no stinking hymnal. I had it memorized. 
I could just go there, and when somebody said, Beloved, the Lord, you're strong, you're now with a clean heart, confess our sins on God, about I just, okay, I poor, miserable sinner, confess them to me, all my sins and iniquities, with which I repented the injustice, just blah, blah, blah. I'd do it all. I could just coast. I could just coast and take a meeting where I could watch people. See, what amazes new converts sometimes doesn't amaze me much. That's why I pray all the time. I, I write this doctrine. I, I pray a prayer like this a lot. Lord, show me the truth about myself. Scrape away all the crud of indifference that blocks the work of the Holy Spirit. Lest, having preached to other people, I find myself spit out by Jesus. I mean, that would be a good prayer for anybody to pray. For God to scrape all the crud off of you so that you don't end up being <coughs> spit out. And it's not only don't you care, the backup one, you're arrogant. You're arrogant. Now, verse 17 says, You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. And Jesus here reveals that the heart of the problem is what? The heart. And until the heart is changed, nothing can change. That little phrase, you say, you say, I'm rich. You say, I'm clothed. You say, I can see. Arrogance had blinded them to their true spiritual condition. You know, money has a way of doing that to us. Do you know that? What happens when I do this? Immediately, all eyes turn to it. This stuff is hypnotic. As I talk, you don't look at me. You're not paying attention. You're looking at the money. You're either judging how much I have or how little I have. We can't take our eyes off it. We love money because with money we can buy whatever we want. But I'm going to put this back in my pocket so I can finish this message. Money does crazy stuff to us. Even nice Christian people. We have enough money, we think we're better than other people. It insulates us to the pain of the world if we have enough money. We think that we must be doing something right if we have enough money. But friends, money's not the problem. The money I held up is nothing more than pieces of paper covered with but green and black ink. It's not money, but it's the love of money. And I don't doubt that the church at Laodicea was doing really well compared to the other churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. But the thing that gave them prosperity also brought disease to their souls. They would have been better off to be poor like that church in Smyrna and to know God's blessings than to be rich, smug, and rejected by Jesus. And the worst thing of it all was... They were arrogant. They thought they were doing just fine. Now, in our day, in 2012, this might be a big church with a big building and a big parking lot and a big staff and a big budget and big programs and a big reputation in town. Nothing wrong with all of those things. But this passage ought to remind us that a successful church, successful, is not always what God approves. 
That's why God has an invitation for us. Here's the invitation. Now you can move to the next screen. First one is to wake up. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Now, why did he talk about that kind of stuff? Well, very simply, Laodicea was known as a city of banking. Thus, gold refined in the fire. It was a place where beautiful garments were made of wool, white clothes to wear. It was a place where they manufactured eye salve. There he says, salve to put on your eyes. So what he's attacking here are the very points of their civic pride to reveal their spiritual poverty. Now, I'm kind of struck by the personal nature of this because if somebody walked up to you, Ted, and said, Ted, you make me want to puke. I'd hardly expect them to follow up with, and I love you more than you'll ever know. That just doesn't go together. But when you love someone, guess what? You can hate what's destroying them. And you can love them all the more. It's what Jesus said. I hate what you're doing, but I love you. Parents, you do this all the time. You see your kid embarking on a path of self-destruction? You don't just stand there unless you're a complete dope. You say something. Even if you know it's going to make your kid angry. So it is with the Lord. He's not going to just stand there idly by while we're doing whatever we want to. He's got to do something to wake us up. That's what I always think about the story of the prodigal son. You know, on your hands and knees in front of a hog trough. It's like, how low do you need to go before God actually gets your attention? But God will get it. You need to wake up, but then you need to open up. He said, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And now this invitation becomes very personal. Jesus kind of turns from the church to talking about one person. And I find great encouragement in this. Even though other people you know may ignore Jesus, you can open the door. Your husband or wife may not care two hoots about Jesus, but you can open the door. I mean, your friends may be so enamored with the world that Jesus means absolutely nothing to them, but you can still open the door. Now, you could be a part of a lukewarm church, but guess what? You can still open the door. And not only does Jesus stand out there to wait, he wants to actually come in and eat with you. I don't know if there's any better picture of Christian life. And he, he wants to come in. He doesn't want to eat fast food. I mean, don't be taking him to Whataburger or someplace like that. What Jesus wants to do is to come in and dine with you. He wants to have one of these meals uh, with a lingering conversation in front of a crackling fire. Or if you live in Texas, under the air conditioning and fan. Now, isn't it, isn't it amazing that the worst church, Laodicea, gets the best of all invitations? I mean, isn't that just like Jesus? After exposing all of their indifference, he offers himself. You ever play that game, you know, where you say, uh, if you could eat supper with any three people, who would it be? 
you know, you're expected to say something like, uh, Catherine the Great, Johnny Cash, and Socrates. But in our text, there's only one answer. It's dinner with Jesus. Just the two of you. Can you imagine that? You and Jesus eating supper. Talking things over while you share a meal. You like a meal like that? I mean, John, I like having coffee with you, but I'd trade you in a heartbeat for supper with Jesus. That's what he says. Spend some time with me. Here's the grand conclusion. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Go to the next slide. Many of you have seen this famous picture. You've seen this by uh, Holman Hunt. I spent a lot of time as a kid when my grandpa was custodian of St. John's Lutheran Church, and I would sit on this side of the church where we had stained glass windows, and I would study that stained glass window of Jesus standing knocking at the door. It, it always puzzled me why somebody didn't, you know, why Jesus doesn't go in. And, and like many of you know, if you look at that painting long enough, there's no door handle on the outside of that door. He just stands there and knocks. But there's no door handle. No door handle. The door needs to be opened, how? From the inside. So it is for us. Jesus comes again and again and says, I want to spend time with you. And he does what? He knocks. He calls us and he waits for our response. He comes, knocks, calls, and waits. And guess what? For anybody who opens that door, Jesus comes in and Jesus makes himself at home. I can picture Jesus doing something like this. Anybody here have a room that you wouldn't want anybody else to go into? That you're out? You know, the place that when you know you got company, whoop, <laughs> Jesus will look in that room. He's going to make himself comfortable. He wants to know you. He wants to know you. And in a sense, this is really the final, the final invitation to all seven of these churches. And that's why I say to you, friends, don't let your sin, don't let your failures keep you from Jesus. I mean, after all, Jesus came for sinners, and it's sinners who need a Savior. So I want to remind you again today, for all of the foolish and fallen and messed up and mixed up and worn out and discouraged and backslidden and compromised, downtrodden, unlovely church people who, who, who wish and dream and secretly hope for a new start, take heart. Jesus has come for every last single one of us. And what does he do? He stands at the door of your heart and he knocks. The question is whether or not you will let him in. Uh, to those of you who answer yes, he comes in and he makes himself welcome at home and then he makes everything brand new. A lot of you like to watch these shows, you know, where somebody comes in and recreates your entire house. Anybody watch those shows? Guess what? When Jesus comes in your house, he does that too. Makes everything new. 
And if we welcome him now, guess what? We will reign with him forever. And honestly, I can't think of a better deal. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's stand and join in our affirmation of faith.